join me in your copy of God's Word in John's Gospel again, chapter 1, as we close out the prologue, the opening verses, the opening part of John's Gospel. Today we'll be in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. Uh, I am a, a bit of a science fiction film enjoyer. I'm not, I'm not an, aficio, uh, an aficionado. I'm not, I'm not a sci-fi nerd. I didn't love 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm not that crazy about sci-fi, but I do enjoy a good time travel movie, a space journey movie, or, and my wife won't let me live this down, so I'm just going to say it publicly, even the occasional Bigfoot documentary. <laughs> See, now it's public, so you can't hold it over my head anymore, dear. Everybody knows. But the more enduring sci-fi theme has less to do with space travel or time travel or even cryptid creatures, but rather the alien, the the extraterrestrial visitation. Movies like E.T., Contact, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Abyss, Flight of the Navigator, Independence Day, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Cocoon, one of your favorites is in there somewhere, I'm sure. In each of these films, there is an extraterrestrial visitor, an alien visitor, and the humans rush to it if they can find it or them, and are always trying to answer one question about that extraterrestrial's presence among them. Why? Why are you here? Why us? What do you want? Who are you? Most of the time, the answer is, we're here to exterminate you. Because our home planet is dead and you're ugly and vulnerable. We want your planet for our new home and it doesn't matter who we are. Just die already and let us take over. Through John's prologue, as we've been seeing week by week, John the gospel writer and disciple of Jesus has been introducing us to the word. In Greek, it's the logos. And preparing us to understand the appearance of the word, the appearance of the logos on earth. When he comes in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the word, the divine logos, is not coming as an extraterrestrial. Jesus is not an alien, okay? We're not going there today. But he did come, he does come as one from whom the world was estranged by their sin. We are alienated from God in that sense by our sin. But as the word comes, as as the logos takes on human flesh and is born and lives among us and dies and is raised again, the question naturally rises and has been rising in the prologue of John's gospel all the way to this point. Why? Why did the word come? What was his purpose? What did he accomplish? And what in the world does that matter for us? As we close out the prologue to John's gospel, John 1, 14 to 18, we're going to see that the Word, Jesus the Christ, became flesh, became human to show the world the Father in all of His glory. The main idea that will be guiding our our time in God's Word this morning is this, and comes from God's Word, is this, that at Christmas, the Word became human in the man, Jesus Christ, to make God known to us. You want to know why the Word became flesh? For this reason, to make God known to us. Now, what we need to do at Christmas in light of this passage is to, realize that what, is to realize that what we need to know about God can be known and seen in Jesus. The love of God may be found in Jesus. The justice of God is perfected in Jesus. The plan of God for our rescue from sin is completed by Jesus. Knowing God in Him and being saved by God through faith in Him 
Let us then find our hearts bubbling over with marvelous worship this Christmas for the Word who became flesh to make God known to us. Would you stand with me as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading His Word? John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The Gospel writer continues in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with these words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made Him known. This is God's Word. You may be seated. At Christmas, Jesus, the divine Logos, became human to make God known to us. We see a couple of important things about what the Word does in becoming human in this passage. And the first is this, that the Word, the Logos, reveals the glory of God. That's what He intends to do. He reveals the glory of God among us a couple of ways, and one of those ways is by tabernacling among us. That's a weird way of saying that, but this is what John has written. He says that the Word, the divine Logos of verse 1, as John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. That Word, that same Logos, becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. I want to deal with each of these aspects separately, becoming flesh and tabernacling among us. First of all, the Word becomes flesh, or the Word became flesh. Different from when John says the Word was with God and the Word was God, meaning that the Word is eternally divine, He's the same God as the God of the Old Testament, and He never stopped being that God. John now says that that eternal Word, the Son of God, becomes something that He wasn't before. He becomes human. I'm going to say something that will sound strange to you at first, but biblically it is true. The Son of God, the Word that John speaks of here, has always existed. The Son of God has always existed. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. But there was a time when the Word was not human. That first Christmas, the Word, John says, became flesh. He added humanity to his divinity so that from that moment on, the eternal Son of God has always been and will always be fully God and fully human in the man, Jesus. Even now, the Word is still flesh in the resurrected and glorified human, Jesus the Christ. When he died and was raised again, he did not set aside his humanity like that was fun for a minute, that was a helpful tool, now back to what I was before. No, he keeps his his humanity, he maintains his humanity. Even now, the Son of God is enfleshed as Jesus the Christ at the right hand of the Father. Understand now there's so much more that we could say at this moment about the two natures of Christ residing in one person, being both 100% God and 100% human. But for the sake of time, we can't unfold all of it today. Simply know that when Jesus was born, the Word was not merely putting on flesh like a garment, only to take it off later. 
Neither was the Word embodying a separate human person. So uh, when the Word became flesh in the man Jesus Christ, the eternal Logos of God, the Word, became human without sacrificing or forfeiting His divinity. The understanding, this understanding of Christ is what's commonly called the hypostatic union. There's your $20 uh, theological term for the day. The hypostatic union. No other human being has ever been anything but 100% human. What we see in Jesus being fully human and fully divine, 100% of each, is unlike anything else in human experience. And yet John says, as an eyewitness to Jesus, that this is precisely what we see in Christ. The Word adding humanity to His divinity. He became flesh. Second, John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Now, the verb that John uses here, the verb dwelt or to dwell, is a verb that that in the New Testament only John uses. No other New Testament writer uses this verb. Here and a handful of times in Revelation is where he uses it. It is the verb skenao, meaning to pitch a tent or to dwell as in a tent. Interestingly enough, that word skenao has the same root consonants as a Hebrew word, Shekinah. Now, after the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, this is 1,400 years or so before Jesus was born, God gave Moses, the leader of the the Hebrews, He gave him commands to build a tent for His worship by the people. That tent was was called, the common Hebrew word, a, a, a tabernacle. But it took on some special meaning as the place where God would meet with His people and manifest His glory in their presence. In fact, when the tabernacle was completed, we read in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, then the cloud, the cloud of the Lord's glory, covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. John says in his gospel, the word became flesh and pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only and unique son of the father, full of grace and truth. Now, what John's first readers 2,000 years ago would have understood, those who spoke Greek and perhaps knew some Hebrew as well, but certainly knew the story of Exodus, what they would have understood was that John was connecting Jesus with the tabernacle. He's connecting Jesus with that tent of meeting and worship for God's people in the Old Testament. In Jesus is not just the manifest glory of God among His people, but the very person of God taking up residence with His people. As great as the tabernacle and later the temple would become for the Hebrews, Jesus is far better, John is saying. Because in Jesus, God does not confine His manifest glory to a building and a room in a building that only a high priest can enter into once a year. But in Jesus, the very person of the Son of God is present among people, walking with them, talking with them, healing the sick, weeping with the grieving, helping the downcast, speaking with all of the authority of God and teaching them who God is in truth. The glory of God, that is His splendor, His beauty, His majesty, His, His many perfections. The glory of God, John says, was visible in Jesus. We beheld His glory. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. 
The glory of God was visible in Jesus in a way that bears true family resemblance, like the only unique son of a father. We saw three beautiful children up here this morning, two boys and a girl, and they all bear resemblance to their parents. His features, Jesus' features, match the Father's features. His attitude and emotions reflect the Father's attitude and emotions with unparalleled clarity. Specifically, though, He was full of grace and truth. That's what we really see most clearly in the glory of God in Jesus Christ, that He's full of grace and truth. Even those words, that phrase, full of grace and truth, Even those words bear connection to the Old Testament. There's an Old Testament echo even in that phrase. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses, you may remember, had a bit of a debate with God about what God ought to do with the Hebrews after they had disregarded God's covenant and uh, worshipped at the feet of a golden calf that they had fashioned while Moses was away at the top of the mountain spending some time speaking with God. And in this conversation with, uh, with God, um, God affirms to Moses his covenant love for his people, and he assured Moses that he was not going to destroy the Hebrews. Moses, being human though, desired a physical assurance of God's promise, a, a physical encouragement from God to keep leading these people who had already so quickly turned away from him. So he asks God, show me your glory. Give me this much to go on, to keep leading this stiff-necked, stubborn people. Show me your glory. God said to Moses, no man could see his face and live, but that he would turn Moses away. He would turn him around to face the mountain, and he would pass behind Moses. And when Moses would turn back around, he would see God's back, or, or he would see the, the wake of his glory. And as Moses turned around, the Lord did what he promised. He passed behind him, and he said his personal name, Yahweh, twice. And and then he uttered these words in Exodus 34, verse 6. We we read, the Lord passed before Moses, or behind Moses, but before him, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God saying his personal name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those last two qualities, steadfast love, faithfulness, are roughly the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek, full of grace and truth. That's a long way around to get there, but you see where we're going? You see what John is saying to us? Do you see how much John has packed into this one verse in verse 14? He has said that the Word, who is God, that he he introduced to us in in verse 1 of his gospel, has added humanity to his divinity in a permanent way, and that just as Yahweh rested his glory in the tabernacle, so has his glory come and tabernacled among us in the man Jesus Christ. And more than that, the way that we know it's the same God in Jesus as it was in the tabernacle in the Old Testament is because his character is exactly the same. Jesus is abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness, the same way that Yahweh is full of grace and truth. Do not be mistaken this morning. Jesus is the Son of God, Yahweh in human flesh. But there's more. After a brief parenthesis in verse 15, by which John reminds us uh, uh, that Jesus outranks John the Baptist because 
Jesus is eternal and eternally more powerful and glorious than John the Baptist, and that John the Baptist said the same thing about, my, about himself. He said, I, I'm not the guy you're looking for. He is. Don't look to me for salvation. Look to Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. John the Gospel writer picks up in verses 16 and 17 uh, to tell us how he knows that Jesus is this word made flesh full of glory and grace and truth. How do we know that Jesus is this word made flesh full of glory and grace and truth? Well, first, he says in verse 16 that for from him or from his fullness, his fullness of grace and truth and God's glory, we have all received grace upon grace. That little word that that begins the the beginning of uh, verse 16, for, that little word for is an explanation word. It's a, specifically, John is explaining to us how he can say that the glory of God was seen in Jesus because he brought, because Jesus brought grace on top of grace or the gift of God's favor in new and added measure to what was already known. That's how we know who he is. He brought grace on grace. How did he do this? Well, we get the second explanation in verse 17. For from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now this is not John's way of saying that the law was bad and Jesus is good. That's not what he's saying here. Or that the law was evil and Jesus is righteous. He's not saying it, if I could add tone to the the text. He's not saying the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. He's not saying it that way. He's saying, the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. He's he's holding them up side by side. He's not contrasting them against each other. Actually, he's saying the opposite thing about the law. He's saying that the law is good. That the law itself that, that God gave to Moses, that he gave to the Hebrews, is a grace of God. The law is a gift of God that reveals God's own holiness and God's own righteousness and God's own desire for how his people ought to live with him. But it is grace upon that grace that Jesus would come as the word of God in human flesh to live how the law required and then to die for sinners who have, who have not lived as the law required and could not fulfill the law perfectly. In this way, Jesus is, the, is full of steadfast love. He's full of grace for sinners and he's full of faithfulness. He's full of truth in that he fulfills what God demands and then gives the benefits of his own obedience, salvation and righteousness. He gives those to those who do not deserve it, but but whom he's glad to give to when they believe on him. Now, that's a lot packed into just a few verses. So I'm going to give you just a second to breathe and soak that all in. The ever-existing Word, who is God, the same God that showed his glory to the Hebrews, took up residence among humans as a human. He wasn't a man possessed by God, nor was he a human body controlled by God's spirit or something, but he's a fully human, fully divine person. And when the Word became flesh, he showed us with skin on what his steadfast love and faithfulness looked like up close and in real time. And then, and then, he doubled down on the gift of God's law by keeping it perfectly for us, by doing what not a one of us in this room or in this world has ever done, and then giving to everyone who believes him the benefits of his own perfect righteousness. Here is good news, friends, that if you are burdened by knowing that you are not righteous as God is, 
that if you are not, you know that you are not holy like God is, and that you know that there is no good reason for God to call you just and pure, that the very things that you lack can be yours in Christ. Because He fulfilled the law. He brought grace upon grace. His righteousness can be yours. Because He is sinless, His holiness can be yours. Because He is the very image of the invisible God and the only unique Son of God, His fellowship with the Father can be yours if you place your faith in Him. He might give life to all those who believe, John says in his gospel. He died, this Jesus, and rose again to give you every privilege that He has as God in flesh so that you can be reconciled to your Creator living in relationship with Him the way that you were designed to do. The Word became flesh to show us the glory of God. It's amazing. And He does it not just to to boast about God, but to bring us into a life-giving, God-glorifying, purpose-fulfilling relationship with our own Creator. And when He does this, bringing us into relationship with Him, and when He does this, when the Word takes on flesh, Jesus the Christ The Word, He makes God known to us. He makes God known to us. The last verse of the prologue, John 1, verse 18, wraps up not just our passage for today, but it wraps up this whole introduction to John's biography of Jesus. He says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is what everything from chapter 1, verse 1 has been getting to. The Word makes God known known to us. Now, of course, the Jews knew God through the law and through the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, for centuries. God had revealed himself through the spoken and written word of his people that way. It's not as though God was a stranger to them, but he was, in some sense, estranged from them. From the moment of Adam's first sin, fellowship with God was broken. God no longer walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden, and he was relationally separated from God by his sin. Because God's holiness is all-consuming. Like he told Moses in Exodus 34, no one can see my face and live. No one since Adam has seen God that way. They'd seen manifestations of God's presence in burning bushes and columns of smoke and fire, a, a still small voice on a mountainside from angelic visitors, and even in spiritual visions, but they'd never seen his face. They'd never seen his person. That is not until Jesus. Jesus, who is the only God, the Word made flesh, because he is God and in perfect and unhindered relationship to God the Father, when he comes, he shows us who God is. You ever wonder about or have you ever been confused about who God is? Have you ever racked your brain to try to pin down what God is like? Are you ever uncertain about how He would respond to you, to your sins, to your failings, to your weaknesses? If any of these are true, John has great news for you. You can know who God is. You can be certain of what He is like. And you can have confidence to know that He will receive you even in your weakness, even in your sin, even in your brokenness, simply by your faith, by your trusting in Jesus to begin to make you whole. Simply by looking at Jesus, you can know God. It is Jesus who has made God known to us. In John 14, 6 and 7, Jesus says these words, said to uh, the disciples that he was going to be going away soon. And Thomas asked, 
Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. It is true. No one has seen God at any time, but we can see him perfectly in Jesus, who is God the Son in becoming human. He has perfectly demonstrated all of the character of God the Father to us so that we might have no question about who God is or what he is like or whether he will have mercy on sinners like us or whether he is truly just and righteous. All of those answers are for us in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. This is good news. The Word shows us the glory of God. The Word makes God known to us in in knowable, relational ways, John tells us as he begins his gospel. We've been doing this every single week, and so we might as well do it again. Come to the point, well, that's all wonderful news, Stephen. What does any, any of this have to do with Christmas? In light of John 1, 14 to 18, here's what you should do this Christmas. Here's what you should do this Christmas. First, stop wondering about what God is like. Answer your every question about him by looking to Jesus. Now, listen, you won't ever be able to exhaust everything there is to know about God, right? Uh, I'm not saying stop wondering about all the questions you might have about God, but stop worrying about his character and what his character is like. Stop worrying about how he responds to sinners. Stop worrying about how he might or might not receive you in your sin if you come to him in faith. Answer all of those questions about him by looking to Jesus. We cannot stop at Jesus, the baby, in the manger, though. We must go all the way through His holy life, His death as our substitute, and His resurrection in glory. Listen, I love chubby-cheeked, giggly babies as much as anyone else in this room. I have to fight myself from grabbing one of these sweet children from their parents and just holding them the rest of the service. I'd probably get arrested if I tried, so I won't. I love a chubby-cheeked, giggly baby as much as anyone. And in God's providence, we got to celebrate three of them this morning as their parents dedicated themselves to raising their children to love the Lord, but these children will not stay babies, and their lives will not be defined by their infancy. As God wills, Sebastian and Pierre and Rebecca will become adults, and their lives will say so much about who they are, far more than what what we can say about them by seeing them as babies today. So at Christmas, reflect on all of Christ, not just little baby Jesus in the manger, but all of Christ, the whole Christ, so that you may see what God is like in every aspect of his being. At Christmas, don't stop at the stable. Don't stop at the manger. Go all the way to the cross and to the empty tomb to know all of who Jesus is and all that God has done in Christ to bring salvation to you. What should you do this Christmas? Second, receive Jesus, the word made flesh. Receive him by trusting in him. Don't merely observe that He is gracious and true and trustworthy and compassionate, experience these things from Him. Experience His grace. Experience His truth, His faithfulness. Experience His trustworthiness. Experience His compassion by giving your life wholly over to His care and faithfulness to work His holiness into you and then out of you. Confess your sins to Him. Repent from willful and self-reliant rebellion against God. And trust in the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. He is God's gift of salvation to all who believe. John is making that abundantly clear in his gospel. So, unwrap that gift. 
and receive Jesus Christ as Lord today. How do I do that, Stephen? How do I receive Christ as Lord at Christmas? How do I unwrap that gift? First of all, you, you recognize that He is God. You recognize that, that He is God's own Son in human flesh and that He came to provide a rescue, a redemption, a, a salvation from your sin. And recognizing that means also recognizing about yourself that you have sin that needs saving. Just true of all of us. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're wondering, am I a sinner? The answer is yes. <laughs> do I need Jesus? The answer is yes. How do I receive him? Well, you come to him with your sin and you say, Jesus, this is all of my sin. These are the sins I've committed this week. These are the sins I've committed in the last year. These are the sins I've committed over my life. These are the sinful temptations that I struggle with day by day. These are the things that are plaguing me and keeping me from being holy. And Jesus, I believe because your word says that you died on the cross. You gave your perfect life as a substitute for my sinful life so that I can be made holy. And whether or not you understand how that works, friends, most days I'm still praying through and asking God to know how he can do such a thing. But scripture says that this is so, that if you confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So you claim that promise of God today. You say, Jesus, here's all of my sin. I believe that you died to pay the penalty for it. I believe that you rose from the dead and that salvation is only through you. The only way that I can be right with my creators by trusting you, Jesus. So that's what I'm doing today. I'm receiving you as Lord today, as King today, as boss of my life today. That's how you receive Jesus. What should you do this Christmas? First, stop wondering what God is like. Answer every question about Him in the person of Jesus. Look to Jesus. Second, receive Jesus as God's gift of salvation to you. Third, marvel. Marvel at the incarnation. That's a, that's a $15 theological word. For the enfleshing, the, the, the becoming human part uh, that the Word fulfills here. Marvel at the incarnation. Now, in our Western world, we don't, we don't marvel much. Great things aren't so great to a people who have been conditioned to expect more great things around the corner. New cars get replaced every couple or three years. The best iPhone today will be obsolete tomorrow. People will forget that X was ever called Twitter and no one remembers who won the World Series just a few months ago because it's football season and the 49ers are blazing hot right now. <laughs> we are a flavor of the day culture. And because of that, we don't stop to marvel at truly marvelous things. The incarnation, the Word becoming flesh in the man Jesus Christ is unlike anything else in human history. And it's unlike anything else in human future. It's not just special. This is a unique, one-of-a-kind moment in our existence. The incarnation, the Word becoming flesh, the Son of God being born, Jesus of Nazareth, is unprecedented, and it will never happen again. The Word became flesh in the man Jesus Christ, born an infant that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, and the Word remains forever enfleshed as the glorified and resurrected Jesus. This is a marvelous thing. Marveling, worshiping, standing in wonder and awe at this gloriously confounding and astonishingly beautiful act of God at Christmas is absolutely the right thing to do. When we stop to marvel at the incarnation, we are pausing to give God glory. We're stopping to say, 
this is beautiful. This is amazing. We're stopping to praise Him for doing what we needed most, but never could have planned for ourselves. To bring the smallness of who we are into right perspective with the bigness, the greatness, the the, the incomparably majestic nature and person of God. When we stop to marvel at the incarnation, we are stopping to say, God, this is something we've never seen before. And it's worth stopping to look at. It's worth stopping to praise you for. It's worth stopping to glory in. It's worth stopping to marvel at. The Word became flesh at Christmas in the man Jesus in order to make God known to us. He shows us God's glory. He reveals God's character. He invites us into relationship with our Creator through His death and resurrection by believing in Him, making Him Lord of our lives. And the right response to this, the best response that I can think of today is to worship Him for it, to praise Him for it, to stop and marvel at a truly marvelous thing and to give God the credit, to give Him the glory to say, no one else could have come up with this. Not one of us could have thought to bring salvation of sin this way and get, God, you have. Takes our breath away, stops me in my tracks makes me stop and say, there's no one else like this. My friends, at Christmas, the Word became human and the man, Jesus Christ, to make God known to us. Is that not anything but absolutely breathtaking? Is that not anything but a cause for the joyous worship of His people? I pray that it is for you. It is for me, and I so love just spending four weeks in the first 18 verses of John's gospel because it's showing me the bigness, the majesty, the glory of God and what He's done in Jesus Christ in ways that I hadn't stopped to marvel at in a while. And it's marvelous. And I invite you to worship God with me in response to the wonderful thing He's done for us in Christ at Christmas. Let's pray together and then we'll sing a song of response, glory and worship to God. I invite you this morning, friend, if you came in here... uh, not believing Jesus was Lord, not trusting Him as King, but now you find yourself strangely strangely warmed, strangely convinced by maybe things that you've heard before, but in ways you hadn't been convinced by them before. You find yourself now believing that Jesus did, in fact, as the Word says, come for you to die for your sins and be raised again. And you want to walk with Him as Lord? Will you come find, with me, uh, find me after worship this morning? And let's talk together from God's Word how you can have assurance of a right relationship with God, your Creator, through Jesus, the Word who became flesh to make God known to us. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship in response to God's wonderful work.